This is Within and Between, a podcast about the methods and meta-science behind developmental science. Hi, it's Jessica Logan. And it's Sarah Hart. And welcome back to another episode of Within and In Between, season three. Season three, you're right. This we had our like teaser, but this is this is it. This is our the official, real deal. Our official start of season three. Yeah, I had in my head. Uh, I'm a big fan of the movie The Muppet Christmas Carol, and at the beginning mm-hmm. of the third act of that one, the the two main little guys. Gonzo, played by Gonzo and Rizzo, they come out and they say, we're back! We promised we would be! And I've been thinking about that all week. (laughs) (laughs) We're back! And we promised we would be! Yes, thank you! (laughs) I don't know that movie very well at all. (laughs) Oh, that's such a shame. It's it's truly the best version of Christmas Carol ever, ever made. Okay, well... Hands down. Hands down. Definitely the best. And not just for the Muppets. That's great. This is not, it's, you know, wrong time of year. It's like July almost. I was going to so. say, it's almost exactly, exactly the Halfway. wrong way, the wrong part of the year. Or is it the right time of oh. year? Bring it back around. You just never know. Watch a, watch some Christmas movies in the middle of the summer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right christmas movies aside yeah let's get into it a little bit i had a question for you jess okay when i actually have been struggling with how to ask this question because oh um oh gosh okay it actually will sound like it's two questions but in reality i think that you really can't answer one well okay okay that that was confusing let me just ask both versions of the question when did you know you wanted to become a methodologist or why I thought that might be hard for you to answer and what we might talk about in this episode is you might not have known you wanted to be a methodologist. So if that's the case, when did you realize you were a methodologist? Oh, what a great question. Oh, you're very good at this game. So this is, a, this is such a fun question. I have so in retrospect it's really easy to see the seeds that Mm -hmm. led to it Mm -hmm. um but truly the switch for me in terms of how i was defining myself happened when i was a postdoc wow so it was when i was a postdoc when you were training me how to do statistics (laughs) yeah (laughs) It's all yours doing, so you did it. <laughs> so I think it was that, you know, I was as I was sort of putting together my materials for what kind of positions I wanted to do after my postdoc and looking at the through line of my research, I was like, honestly, the through line of my research is finding methods that answer questions and then developing the methods to meet the needs of a field. Mm -hmm. That's what I've been doing. If I have the sort of through line to everything that I had done was that. And some of it was really specific, like how are people, uh, like my dissertation was all about the method variance in a particular assessment. So it was really from that point. And then the next papers that I wrote were like new methods in behavior genetics and so it was just this like clear, clear line for me was the the methods piece. Um, so it was that and it was, you know, I really like explaining statistical things to people and methodological things to people. Mm-hmm. And I like working with, uh, with people to help them turn their research questions into answerable questions. Because mm-hmm. sometimes people will approach... And say like I need a methodologist. Uh, I need to I need to work with someone who knows statistics, and um, I just want to know if kids are good at like are these kids good at reading, and so then being able to break that down and sort of work with the person to turn that into a testable hypothesis 
is a whole process. And it's a process that I love doing. And so Mm -hmm. I think that was when the shift happened for me. It was like right at the end of my postdoc where I went, when I get another job, that's what I want to keep doing. Yeah, I think so. And then my through line, you know, looking back, like that's always what I was interested in. When I think about the very first research project I ever did, it was me coming up with a method of how to test a hypothesis. He was like, this is the question I have. Go forth and try to figure out some way to test it. And I loved that. So it was like every project I've ever done was sort of figuring that piece out. So that was my, that, and that was why. So it's like, it's kind of like little puzzles that I get to put together. I have to say your answer is very surprising to me. (gasps) Oh, tell me more. I actually thought you were going to say a little bit earlier Mm. in your career, only because, you know, you trained with somebody who identifies first as a methodologist. And it just never struck you that maybe you were being trained in training as a methodologist? No. Nope. Mm-mm. It really didn't. I just really liked all the statistics. I liked them all. I think so. I think that maybe you overestimate the purpose with which I entered my PhD program. <laughs> <laughs> and by that, I mean, I was sort of like, I like doing this. This is cool and fun. And here's somebody who's a, you know, a program who's willing to fund me to do it, to learn this stuff. Cool. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated. I didn't know any professors. I wasn't like gung-ho ready to go out in the world and, you know, change in to, to increase the knowledge of the world. I didn't understand that the point of Science is to increase the knowledge of the world until very much later than I should have. <laughs> but you did it like, like in your peach really late. You didn't notice that maybe you were kind of acting like a methodologist? Uh, that's a good question. It's been a long time. Yeah. It's fascinating. But I think maybe it actually points to why we decided to do this episode, right? Um, mm-hmm. We... Well, you know, first off, our podcast is really methodsy heavy, right? You're a methodologist. Mm-hmm. I always am very vocal that I don't think I am a methodologist. I just <laughs> I always say you definitely are. <laughs> happen to like to use lots of fun statistics. And I, you know, yeah, I have some papers that might might make me look like I'm a methodologist. <laughs> you took there was something that I worked on for uh, two years. And worked on a little bit with you for like two years and I gave up on it and you figured it out, cracked it a couple of years later and published it. It was amazing. <laughs> it was so cool. I love that you figured that out. It was so exciting. So, yeah. So, but anyway, you know, I, it strikes me as a conversation that we have at least that I've had with other faculty in my, my department and my area, I should say that, you know, we we really think of developmental psychology as a method and that's why we train heavily in methods. Um, but we've just noticed that our students don't tend to just after they're done taking, there's something like seven required stats classes plus a few more they typically mostly take, uh, you know, uh-huh. some heavy stats training. Uh, and that's very rare to hear any of our students claim to be a methodologist. And you graduated from the program. It looked different mm-hmm. at the time, but it was this pretty much the same program. And, mm. you know, you during it re- didn't even think of yourself as a methodologist. It was post postdoc. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it, we have these conversations of what, how can we convince people they're methodologists? How do you become a methodologist? Uh, and that's mm-hmm. why we end up thinking we should do it on our podcast, our Methodsy podcast, because probably people who yes. are listening um, like methods, uh, mm-hmm. you know, other than our Wendy banter, of course. Uh, <laughs> and they might be wondering, there might be students out there, like, or, you know, there could be faculty who are years into the job wondering, am I a methodologist? How do I become a methodologist? So, yeah. You're exactly right. That's that. And I have people ask me that all the time. Like, what even is this job of yours? How does this how does this work? <laughs> and what and what is it? So I think that, you know, in sort of making the outline for today, mm-hmm. I started off by let's define 
this yeah, word, what, what is what is a methodologist, Jess? So I see a methodologist. So this is this is my working definition. Okay. As I've been sort of trying to self-define and sort of define the the role that I see people playing that are that are methodolo- methodological role specifically. Um, so a methodologist I consider to be a content expert, but the expertise that they have is in the the methodological approaches that you would use to test hypotheses um, or of any sort, be they correlational or causal, and then the statistical modeling techniques. So a methodologist I see is a has a broad scope of statistical knowledge and a broad scope of methodological knowledge. Um, so like the research method, mm-hmm. meaning something like the difference between a random assignment and other methods. Like that's a that's a method, a statistical method. So right there, it, that that sort of broadness is what I think of as a methodologist. Now I want to compare that to a statistician. So somebody whose expertise is in the field of statistics or biostats or things like that. So there's that role. Those are people who study statistics to further the field of statistics. And that's incredibly important work that I can't do and don't find very interesting for mm-hmm. the most part. I think it's, it, it, like I said, it's incredibly important and we do need to further the field's understanding of how to model data. And there's lots of people who are working on that. I think that's very different than a methodologist. And here is why. So the the what I have come to realize about methodologists is that really... What we are is meta-scientists. So a methodologist is a meta-scientist because we have to know what's happening in the statistics field and the research methods field. And we have to know what's happening in some other field of expertise. Mine is children's development, like reading and language and math development. So that's, and my work is at the intersection of those things. So the methodologist has to understand where the I'm using lots of miming that nobody can see where the content experts who are working in math and reading and language, we have to understand where the science is there, but we also have to understand the broad scope of statistics and methodological approaches that you could use so that you can bring them together. And so that's why I see it as meta science, because it's the difference between publishing a paper that's like, here's a new estimator for a uh, confidence interval. And, hey, I'm looking at what everybody's publishing in reading development, and we're publishing this kind of growth model. I think we could be publishing this kind of growth model. Here's how this kind of growth model is different. Here is the content question that it answers differently in reading development that we've been working on for a long time. So in in the BG literature, for example, we were people had been modeling growth as straight lines. For years. So one of the first papers that we worked on together was, hey, you know, there's these other models that let growth not be straight lines. We don't have to model growth in straight lines. We can model it other ways. And look, now we're able to see what this looks like over a longer trajectory, a longer period of time. And that really helps. It helps both. Again, with my miming, I'm not helping anyone, but I'm doing lots of beautiful miming. It's beautiful. I'm following right along. Thank you. It's just, you know, two years of mime camp. Mime summer camp. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> We're going to have to dig into that okay, in a so. future episode because that's amazing. I wasn't a clown for you. Okay. Well, no, we won't. <laughs> More ways that we were similar. So- I did juggling though, not miming, but that's okay. You did. I did. Can you still juggle? Uh, I can only somewhat juggle three balls. <gasps> so not, not much anymore. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to see. I got to see this. Okay. This is so exciting. <laughs> okay. I don't even know what I was saying, but there was lots of miming happening <laughs> between sorry, two I totally directions. <laughs> I, I derailed it myself. It's the connection between the methods people are using in it's the new methods people are developing, right? So we're reading lots of different fields. We're reading in economics literature. We're reading in statistics literature, and then taking those ideas and seeing how they apply into a specific content area, and then writing a couple of kinds of papers. One of them is entirely content-based, but using a new method. And some of them are, hey, here's a new method. 
that I think that we should be using as a field. Let me introduce it to you. Let me explain to you how it's different. So that piece is what I see as is, is the meta science driving the this approach. Yeah. And it's not just simply being, you know, cross-disciplinary or interdisciplinary. It's mm-hmm. the like that kind of that the meta piece, right? They're recognizing of what the content field might need to answer their research questions a little bit better and then applying recognizing what the good methods from the the methods and stats fields are doing uh, that might be useful for the content field. Kind of seeing that, you know, that one level up and in, in being meta about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People pay me for these brilliant insights. <laughs> meta about it. <laughs> I just made that oh, that's fun. so clear. <laughs> you really did. You really did. <laughs> Bringing it right back in. So I think that the you you made a really good point, which is the expertise you have to have is in two places. And so with students that I'm training, I will always encourage them to take courses or to do research projects that are not strictly statistics. I want them working in a field somewhere. So that they are learning the content of that field, as well as the content that I'm teaching them and that they're learning through my program so that they're able to take one and apply it to the other. And then also the reverse is also true. Oh my gosh. Because here's what happens. Then here I am working with, say you're working with someone and uh, looking at an intervention, for example. So we were looking at the results of an intervention and sort of saying, well, here there's, you know, I see that the means didn't change, but I'm looking at the data and my treatment group, they're much more similar to one another. Whereas my, uh, my control group, these kids are spread out all over the place. So what my treatment didn't change the mean, but it definitely had some sort of effect in this randomized control trial. So maybe there's something about spread that we can look up and figure out how we can assess how the variances differ between these two groups. Mm -hmm. And so then that starts to become, so then you can take that idea back to statistics and then start working with statisticians to develop a new way to measure differences in variance. That's not a great example because those tests already exist. Um, But still, you know, you can sort of, the, the, the pathway goes both ways. I love it. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Great. So, so that's that's what a methodologist is. It's a it's a content expert, and you're in multiple fields, and a meta scientist understanding both of those at the same mm-hmm. time, so that you can connect them together. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, going last year. Oh gosh, it wasn't last year. It was two years ago. COVID just took out a whole year of, you know, like, like it didn't exist in our lives, but okay. I know. <laughs> Two years ago we were at, we went to the meta science conference and kind of you yes. like being like, oh, oh, this is it. This is who I am. Yeah. I know. That's exactly right. I was like, this is exactly what I'm doing. I'm so excited that we, we figured there's a word for it. There's a word for it. Right. That was the, that was when I figured out, oh, there's, there's a whole research field around this. This is fun and exciting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So methodologist role in research projects. Yeah. Let's talk about that yeah. because because this is another way that I think methodologists sort of differ from a statistician. And I have um, lots of examples, so I'll try not to be too mean to statisticians who I love and I appreciate their work that they do. Well, because you're re- you're in that some. literature too. You're reading it. You're just not publishing your own stuff in that literature. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but the first thing I'm going to say is a little bit more of a, a drag on content experts, which uh, I call this section, the patient is already dead. <laughs> and this comes from, <laughs> the idea is sometimes people will call a statistician or a methodologist and they'll say, hey, I've collected all my data. Um, I need to analyze it and figure out if my treatment worked. Let's talk. And at that point, there have already been so many decisions made that oftentimes there's no way to actually determine whether your treatment worked or didn't work. There's no way to really answer the question. So 
you want to involve this, the methodologist or the statistician, you want to involve this person early in the process. Involving them too late, they can't help. But if you involve them in the planning stages, moving that all the way through, then you're able to uh, really ask better questions and you're able to potentially be able to answer your question in a way that you might not have if you had waited, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like one example that I like to tell is I worked with a, a postdoc and she you know, came and was sort of talking with me about, okay, here's what I want to know. You know, I measured self-efficacy and I measured uh, sort of math ability. And I want to know if kids' math ability is related to their self-efficacy. I was like, great, that sounds like a correlation to me. Let's take your data. We can work on it. We'll, we'll, We'll talk about correlations. And we talked for about 10 or 15 minutes and she kept going, no, we can't do that. And I couldn't understand why. And I was sort of like drawing things out and sort of explaining the concepts of correlations. And then eventually we got down to, she collected the data anonymously separately in separate forms. So she didn't have any way to link the math test data to the self-efficacy data. And so she did basically, she couldn't answer the question. Yeah. Because she didn't know whose data belonged to who. It's just heartbreaking. It is so, it is so heartbreaking. It is just absolutely devastating to, and I had to, you know, sort of tell her, I, there's just nothing, there's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do. You could, I mean, you could sort them in order and have a great correlation. (laughs) (laughs) But don't do that. Don't do that. That's not science. Yeah. So and so those are the sorts of things where if you're involving someone with this expertise early, those are the kinds of mistakes that you're way less likely to make. Yeah. And you've said before on the podcast, I believe that as a methodologist, you like to be involved from the very beginning. Like your preference would be like yeah. before anything in the project really starts and that you see your role not just to be given data, but to be at the very beginning when every design choice is being made. And then that's how you really kind of, you're, you know, you're saving everybody's butts because then when you get data, but it's just easy from then on, you know, the data actually makes sense. Yeah. Well, so a really good example of this is, um, I like to be involved, but when the specific aims, specific aims are being written, Mm -hmm. that's the stage at which I want to be involved because a lot of times, so many times, you know, the, the, content experts are thinking primarily they're thinking about what questions need to be answered in the field next and they've got all of this excellent expertise about what what the driving questions are but they're big they're huge you know there are things like uh can this intervention work which is a a huge question like here's an intervention that's being used in the field i want to know if it works Great. You will if you can you can copy some language that's sort of like what is the efficacy of a program smart water? <laughs> Does it work? But then like that's not defined enough to be able to actually answer the question. And so we'll go through multiple phases of refining research questions to get them to a place that they're actually actionable and where you can actually truly question them question them that's not right truly answer the question ha i did it i did it <laughs> and you know sort of sort of break that down and then that that leads into our power analysis and things like that so you know one way that they'll change is just really refining questions so that they really are answerable the other way that they change is you know if i'm enough of a content expert I can say, I, okay, you're telling me you want to look at um, teacher knowledge. You think that this is going to change teacher knowledge. But I looked at, you know, th- I've read these papers on teacher knowledge, and we are terrible at moving teacher knowledge. We cannot move it at all. Mm-hmm. I really also don't see it here in the, uh, what's the picture thing that you draw? Oh, for I, yeah. the theory yeah. of change. I'm also not seeing that in your theory of change as contributing to kids' outcomes, and you really want to contribute to kids' outcomes. So let's talk about taking this 
out. Like, I don't think you need to actually ask this. I don't think that's going to advance your question. Or you want to change teacher knowledge. Okay, it's got a really, really tiny effect size. Now you're going to need 700 teachers. (laughs) (laughs) You can't, you can't test this with only 50 teachers. It's just not possible. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of these little tiny decisions that actually end up having these huge reverberations on down the line. Mm -hmm. That if you're working with someone with this expertise really early on, then we can catch it, we can refine it, we can make for better questions. Mm-hmm. I could just talk about this so for so for so long. This this leads into my next point here, which is methodologists aren't machines. Um, and uh, the example I have here is, you know, post hoc, you maybe hire a statistician and say, "Here, I have I have collected data on memory and age." So please, can you go tell me if memory is related to age? As a statistician will say, yes, it does. It's $1,000. Thank you. Versus if you're saying, hey, at the beginning of this this whole operation, you're saying, hey, I, I want to know if memory is related to age. Then I can say, well, did you read the paper that came out last year that looked at this mediation analysis? That seemed really cool. Maybe we could explore that mediation process. I know that in your previous papers, you had looked at this and this. Maybe these things can mediate this relationship. And then, so that changes fundamentally the question and makes for a more interesting question, depending on where you stand on mediation as a whole whole shtick. We don't have to get into that today. Maybe mediation was a bad example, (laughs) but, you know, maybe moderation. But you've got all of these... it it takes this combination of two expertises to be able to get to a question that's well-defined and that is truly cutting edge in different ways. Mm-hmm. I've also found kind of, I, I know I'm bringing us back a little bit to that statistician versus methodologist difference, but the statistician doesn't think much about the act of collecting the data, right? They're not experts in understanding, you know, not only Mm -hmm. design, which they probably, you know, could speak kind of high level about design, but like out on the street type design stuff and things like data entry and data, you know, just data management in general, Um, Mm -hmm. which your content expertise also applies to like, you know, what it's like to collect, you, you, you understand what it's like to collect data with kids in schools and, Mm -hmm. you know, you can speak through issues you might know are going to come up or you can think through, um, you know, even like threats to validity that, you know, are going to come up even before go out, you know, like the, the team goes out to collect data. Um, and these are just not areas that a statistician is thinking of, whereas people think, well, uh, you know, in the end, you just need to, to, to do statistics. So that's what a method, you know, I'll just need a statistician, but you really, that's why a methodologist is so cool. They can help, you can help just more level, more parts of the research process, uh, and just make, I don't know, make the science so much better. You're just so good at making science so much better, Jess, which is why you're in high demand. Thanks. (laughs) I appreciate it. I re- that's a really good point. And I, I don't even have that here on my outline. And I'm really glad that you brought it up because I think uh, that is definitely another aspect of research design that comes up, particularly in these large scale education studies. Um, and any sort of large, large scale study, they, they come up things about, um, you know, not it's not the same as sampling because sampling, I feel like statisticians have a good handle on and they think about that Mm -hmm. for sure. You know, we're talking about things like, I know that we're about to have to give a two hour battery. Let's talk about our options for a two hour battery. Mm -hmm. You can't give a two hour battery to a second grader in one sitting. Mm -hmm. You can't. So now we have to make a decision about which gets, how do we split that up? Do we split it up into two sessions or three sessions? How far apart do those sessions need to be um, in time from one another? Do we need to give the measures in a fixed order or in a random order? And so all of those decisions have have reverberating consequences down the line of uh, of analysis. Mm-hmm. So if I give all of the measures in a random order, my means on average, are going to be much better, if that makes sense. They're going to be much more accurate, closer to true. 
Oh, okay. If I give it, okay, let me, let me explain this another way. I have 200 kids Mm -hmm. and I give a math test and then a reading test and half of them for, for in one of these versions, I'm going to give them in a random order. I have a math test and a reading test and they're given in random order. My mean of each of them is going to be closer to true if I give them in a random order. If I give Mm -hmm. the math test first and then the reading test second, the mean of reading might be lower than I might expect. Mm -hmm. Then it might should be because kids are tired at that point. They're exhausted. They don't want to be doing tests anymore. So they might do worse on the reading test. But if my question is individual differences, then they need to be given in the same order Mm -hmm. because I need to be able to compare Sarah to Jess, Mm -hmm. for example. So depending on the research questions I ask, I I need to make very, very different decisions all the way down to that level. And that's why... You know, I like to be involved in everything. It's not that I don't trust people. <laughs> I do. I just want to, I just think that we need somebody thinking about these things along these different steps of the way. Because if you don't have someone thinking about these things, they're really easy to overlook. Okay. And then the last point I have in this section here is the garbage in, garbage out section, which is highly mm. related. Um, and my example here is uh, comes from real life, where I saw a statistician give a talk and said, and so uh, this is not exactly what happened, but, you know, uh, and so the mean of blood pressure was negative 10 in this sample. And so then I analyzed, you know, to compare the differences between my groups. And we were like, but the blood pressure can't be negative 10. That's not a mean. That can't be what blood pressure is. That's not value. That's not true. That can't be the case. But if you don't have the content expertise to know what that measure is, then a statistician who doesn't owe the content at all is more likely to just go, check, 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 did the analysis, done, here you go. Wow. So seeing those errors, the the real version that I saw was somebody telling me that two things weren't correlated in their analysis. And I said, well, that's not possible. It was like, for my reading heads, it was phonological awareness and rhyming. And they weren't correlated in this data set of kindergartners. And you're like, and I was like, that is definitely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Something is wrong with your data because those two things are definitely correlated. No question. <laughs> so if you have a correlation of zero with two things that should be correlated at like 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6, mm-hmm. something's going on in your data that you need to check. But it takes a content expert to, to see those things. The statistician doesn't know. About phono- They might not even know what phonological awareness is. Who knows? <laughs> but you might get some really fancy assumption checking by the statistician. Yeah, absolutely. It's, well, the data looked fine. It's even, you know, to, the, to that, like, we don't often send our students, we don't suggest to our students go to the statistics department to take classes. Um, just because they're just thinking about how to approach analysis, how to approach data so completely differently. And, uh-huh. you know, our, it, it, it is a complete, it is a different field. So. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different field. Um, okay. So uh, it looks like I have one more chunk of this here, which is, which is pretty related. It's the, what I call the over-reliance on T-tests. Mm. Like if you only know how to run a T-test then all of your research questions are going to be framed like t-tests. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. If the only way you know how to do an analysis is a correlation, then every question you ask is going to be a correlation question. Mm-hmm. And so by partnering with someone who knows a much wider range of analyses, then you can ask a lot of different kinds of questions. Ask a lot of different things of your data. You know, I have an example of that. I am in a, you know, a big psych department with five different areas. Uh, and one of the areas is neuroscience. And for a long time, they specialized in, in animal neuroscience. Uh, and they, yeah, love, love T-tests in ANOVAs. Um, and, um, I, you know, the, the students are trained in, you know, in lab methods and stuff, right? They So that's where all their training is and a little bit less in statistics, a lot less in statistics. So I was sitting in a defense, or I think it was a prospectus, um, and uh, the student was really interested in looking at um, the effect of mom on her little pups 
Uh, they're looking at like oxytocin and like licking, like grooming and licking behavior and increasing oxytocin in the pups. Uh, and it's just so clear they had a clustering problem and research question that they were just not even considering the fact that they were treating every pup, the outcome is like completely independent and just going to do an ANOVA on it. And I'm like, but your pups are clustered within mom, right? And the mom is the one that's delivering this licking and grooming behavior. Uh, and it just didn't even, they had never, it just didn't occur. Never thought about it. Uh, and wow. so a little bit different, you know, it wasn't that their research question couldn't have been more interesting if they thought about, a, you know, a different type of statistic, but instead they just only had that one, that one approach and every other student in the program is effectively doing, you know, ANOVAs and T-tests, but this one lab just happens to look at pups nested within mums uh, and looking at the role mm. of mum on kids where the other, you know, labs aren't, don't have that nesting issue the same way. Uh, and so that just never struck anyone that they had a, a nesting problem, wow. <laughs> that those pups were not independent. <laughs> no, not independent. And, and the key variable there, right. Is the behavior of the mom. Yeah, that's it. It was like a level two to level one. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> you've got to, I mean, those, those, uh, that's going to be some very powerful analyses. I'll tell you that right now. They don't cluster. No. <laughs> it's going to look like, it's going to look like you've got a huge effect. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that's true or not, who knows? That's fascinating. Ab yeah, absolutely. That's a really good example of of um, not alignment. And an example, I think, of that a neuroscience expert and a, a, a methodologist in neuroscience has a great paper that they can write yeah. right there. Yeah. Introducing the field to, hey, we're that grossly overestimating or underestimating, depending on what you do with the you know, if you average across the pups versus uh, just estimate it straight out, you've got a really great example and a really great uh, opportunity to do some meta science work in that field. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, field, we should be thinking about this, which is, yeah, that's a fun, that's a fun paper, right? <laughs> you don't need any more papers, Jess. I know. It's very true. It's very true. Um, it's just a oh, well, a question for my next. Year. You know, an example in our field is you know your great quantile regression. You know, addition to the field, <gasps> uh, which even you know sh just shows the power of what you are able to do for the field. You know, to in like extending and thinking through the types of research questions we answer, we can answer uh, or mm -hmm. po you know ask, I guess. Um, you know, the idea that we don't have to just think about the mean in our effect, you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, it, it would probably be pretty uncommon for a developmental scientist to not know how about regressions or correlational designs. Uh, and so that's a pretty regular part of our training. I would say you learn about it in undergrad and a lot of programs, but mm, you know, yeah. you came along and were like, you know, even that's pretty cool tool, even if you do it in a, you know, path modeling or st structural equation modeling, like you like ramp it up into something pretty fancy. We're still kind of, you know, looking at the prediction of the mean. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, we don't have to do it. It's like all that. conditional means modeling. Yeah, we can. We can look at that effect at different parts of the distribution of one of the variables. Uh, and you, why would we assume that that effect would be linear across the distribution? Let's check that assumption. And lots of cool stuff comes out of it when you do that. Yes. Oh, that's a really good example. And not a lot of research questions really are about the mean. Like they really are. Mm -hmm. In which case, great. Let's keep using the mean. I've talked a lot of people out of things like profile analyses mm -hmm. and quantile regression analyses where I'm like, that's not really your question. Like, let's, if we think about the the true question here, this is how that question would be evidenced in your data. And it's not with one of these things. It's with something else. So as as cool and fun and exciting as new as uh, new types of analyses and things are, oftentimes we sort of have to scale people back and say like, that's, yeah, I that's think not about your question. Your fairly recent pub, what was it, like last year that came out that looked at um, the different like language, the different words that kids were getting read to in books, right? That was mm -hmm. just descriptive in the end. Uh, one of yeah. my most favorite papers that I've written was completely descriptive. Uh, I think the furthest I got was some correlations. 
Uh, and so oh, that cool. was fun too. So I love advanced modeling and you do too, you know, you know how to do it all, but you know, you recognize the point is recognizing what the appropriate analysis for the research question. Yes. Meeting the, meeting the research question with the right analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really well put. Okay. I think. So we have thoroughly convinced everybody that methodologists are amazing and what they are. <laughs> But kind of back to where we started, like, how do you become one? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the one of the first pieces of advice that I, I give people is if you are lucky enough to have been trained in lots of different methods, mm-hmm. or you have trained yourself in lots of different methods, uh, from workshops or readings or, you know, whatever it is you're finding and you're running analyses across lots of different projects you're looking at all different kinds of uh, of methods then you are a methodologist congratulations (gasps) just declare it that's all it is you just say this is what i do now i am a methodologist (gasps) i heard it oh no sorry i was talking that that's what people should say (laughs) people not you <laughs> yeah, you just declare it. I mean, essentially uh, when the way to do it is to say that that's who you are. Um and then we can talk a little bit about how to spin materials and how to um like what what that should what that would look like, but essentially uh the first way that I did this to spin my materials in this way was to add a two sentence description of what I did at the top of my CV. So it was like, here's me, this is my address. Here's my education. And then it was, I am a educational research methodologist. I study the intersection of, you know, developmental science and developmental methods. So something like that. So you're adding that very first sentence of this is this is what I do. When you read my materials, read it from this standpoint really helps to focus it. Cuz the thing about being a methodologist is that you will have papers in all kinds of different areas. Yeah, so you look unfocused. Mhm. Without look being told. There was, yeah, go ahead, sorry. There was just a Twitter conversation this week about a fox. The fox is the person who's interested in lots of different things within the within their research area and that's definitely what it looks looks like you're un, unfocused um but really if you have been the person and you're on all of these projects because of the methods the expertise that you bring maybe you ran somebody's multiple regression or you worked with someone to design their surveys or you uh helped them think through their data collection and then ran some analyses and wrote part of the method section. All of that stuff is method specific. And so if you have a statement at the beginning that says, in the work that I do, I serve this role, then it's much easier to see the through line in all of the papers that you're that are listed. Even if one is like, uh, this one's about math and this one's about self-efficacy and this one's about kindness this one's about teachers it doesn't make a ton of sense necessarily if you look at them individually but if you have said i serve this role Mm -hmm. then it's a little bit easier to see where you are yeah and and all of those papers use this class of methods or statistical methods you know i Mm -hmm. i specialize in hlm or whatever it is or you know right you don't have to specialize in a method but you can kind of see the thread that way through the papers it's not the content it's the method that's the thread yeah and you know when I put together materials for NIH, if you write an NIH biosketch, mm-hmm. have we talked about the differences between biosketches? We probably haven't. No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, with NIH, one of the things that they ask you to do is they ask you to talk about your four or five contributions to science. Mm-hmm. And then you have to evidence whatever that contribution of science is by with papers or materials or something that you've backed up. And so the way that I organize that section is by saying... I know a lot of methods. Here is one where I've talked about this. This is my section on smart research designs. Mm-hmm. This is my section on uh, quantile regression. And this is my section on HLM methods. So it's I sort of organize them by methods to sort of talk about 
what the work is that I've done in each of those areas to demonstrate how it moves the field forward. Because the difference is, we haven't talked about like materials at all, but the difference in these is not to say, I know which buttons to push to make HLM go. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's really easy, I think, for students to say, I have training in in structural equation modeling and hierarchical linear modeling and uh, mixture modeling. I can do those. But once you're applying for jobs, we don't care what you can do anymore. Once you're applying for, for, for jobs, most of the time people care more about why you're choosing to do that. So that's the difference I think between it's the difference between a, 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 um, like being a, knowing what's in your tool belt. Mm -hmm. It's like the difference between saying, I know how to use a hammer and saying, I know how to build a trellis or uh, that's a bad example. Maybe I can come up with a better one. Well, I think what you're trying to say is actually why I don't claim myself as a methodologist. Although mm. I have probably a half a leg into the methodology world and I could just claim the title, I prefer to just learn and use that method. Um, and I do much less of introducing the field to the method or extending the method in interesting ways for our field. Um, I'm more, I'm more of that. I have many tools and I can use mm. them and I'm comfortable with using them. Um, mm -hmm. so I say that I'm a content person that uses advanced methods, many advanced methods. Mm. That's kind of how I describe myself rather than, uh, being a methodologist myself. Mm -hmm. I think it's the question. You, I think you're right. It's the questions that, that keep you up at night. So the, that's a terrible, I don't want anybody to stay up at night, but like if whatever you wake up with the most anxiety about or wake <laughs> up thinking about and, uh, or the things that you feel like you need to tell people. And so for me, those are usually, Hey, this sounds like a correlation question. That sounds like a t-test question. This sounds like a latent profile analysis question. Those are the kinds of things that make me go, this is exciting. Right now I have one of just interactions are driving me crazy right now because I feel like everybody's interpreting them wrong in everything that I'm reading. And it's just like, I I can't, but like, I just want to talk about interactions and I want to explain what they are. I want to explain how they work. And those are the, the, that's the method that is at the forefront of my mind right now. It's not, it's not how can I better teach kids to read? Although I think that's important, but that's not what keeps me up at night. That's not what I wake up going, there's kids that can't read yet. I don't wake up like that. I wake up going, there's people interpreting interactions wrong. <laughs> maybe offline we should talk about interactions. Um, but uh, oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, or have a whole episode about interactions. So I want, you know, you say, okay, how, how do you become a methodologist? You just declare it. And there is so much truth in that. There's nobody is really going to give you a certificate on it, in it. I should say there's nobody there. There are, if any, incredibly rare programs that do it, you know, we, you know, are even my program, right? We're under a developmental psychology label. And we did briefly mm -hmm. consider if we should have a certificate program or rename our area to be like applied developmental methodology or something like that. But we still kept it mm. developmental psych. So there's very little formal certification stamp of approval. Mm -hmm. You just have to declare it. But how mm -hmm. can, what, what should our listeners do, you know, to get themselves to be the point where they can declare it? Or if they've declared it because they feel confident, where, what sort of training or should they have, you know, done? That's a great question. I think that the training that I would recommend for anybody who wants to do this kind of work is to go as broad as possible. So if you've, uh, rather than going, going deep, so you're not trying to figure out the best possible way to estimate one particular type of model in one particular area. Instead, think about, well, I want to take enough so that I know how to, uh, I know, I know the kinds of questions that can be asked with this method. And I know the way to actually do this method for lots of different 
kinds of methods. So you want to take workshops if you can, um, or courses if you're lucky enough to have them um, where you are in lots of different areas. So that when someone approaches you with a question about um, whatever they want to be able to test, you're able to sort of match that to some extent to different kinds of analyses that exist in the field. So that if someone approaches you and it's really a, a, a structural equation modeling question that you know that that model exists, you know that those kinds of questions can be asked and you know how to actually ask that question. Okay. So and physically wide breadth of, of training and statistical mm -hmm. models. Um, I assume also that, you know, that goes along with, you know, reading across, uh, you know, a lot of areas, right? You actually have to be mm -hmm. an expert in more more areas than a content person has to be an expert in because uh, you need yes. to know the content as well as keeping up with the research methods in statistical fields. Yes. Yes, you do. It's a lot of reading. I'm not very good at reading either. So that's a whole, that's a whole thing. People are sometimes like you can have them read out loud to you now, which is much better. <laughs> that's much better. Um, and I learn a lot from talks that people give as well. So that's, that's really nice. A couple of times, oh, two of the best grants I ever wrote where I went to a conference, went to a workshop on a particular method and wrote a grant using that method immediately, like turned around and wrote it that summer. Those were the best. Oh, those were so fun. That, so, yeah, when it, think, my first grant, that's what happened to me too. I went to the, the SRCD methods conference that they used to have. Oh yeah, uh, and went to a workshop in integrative data analysis, and you know, it was like that's, that's so cool. Let's write a grant using that. Yeah, but I'm not a methodologist. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, another skill that I've seen that is important um, is uh, the the counseling type part of it. <sighs> You know, so there's the counseling yeah. of like, okay, well, like you've described your data is not going to answer your question because that will come up. But also the, like, somebody is going to come with you with a really abstract, ill-formed research question and being able to answer, you know, ask the right questions to get them to their actual testable research question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think you, you hit on something really important, which is communication is, is absolutely key to this job, this, this type of job. And it's communication in lots of different ways because you have to be able to hear, to be able to, to shape that research question is a whole communication aspect at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But, but you also hit on the counseling aspect mm -hmm. and that definitely happens. And it mostly happens when people haven't counseled, like talked to you beforehand, but it sometimes also happens when you've worked with people the whole time. Like I just finished doing this massive five year uh, project where we're testing the efficacy of some new research, a uh, new intervention uh, or curriculum, essentially, and had to, you know, analyze all these data and find absolutely no effects. <laughs> absolutely oh. no effect on anything that we pre-registered and sort of thought was going to be there. So being able to deliver that news in a way that is uh, uh, tolerable is difficult because mm -hmm. you will often i mean this didn't happen with this particular pi but oftentimes if you say to someone well i looked at your data and there's there's no effect here there's no differences you might have someone say something like but i know it helped jim yeah i sat with jim and he could not do this and then he could and i know that he learned he absolutely learned how to do it so being able to then say i I believe you that Jim learned how to do that. But it also happens to be that some other kid that you didn't work with also learned how to do it mm -hmm. somehow. And so that means that it's not necessarily your treatment. It's not necessarily the thing that you did that made it happen. So did I say this? We need to be really well versed in logical fallacies. I think I had skipped over oh, that Oh, yeah, you so, did. But that's the content. The content is the research method, which I think of as logical fallacies and in mm -hmm. yeah and those things those things mm -hmm. yep all of shaddish cook and campbell <laughs> essentially read that book <laughs> um just read that book yeah <laughs> so communication is super important yes 
So, okay. So those are some skills and that it is very reasonable for a lot of people to already have those skills and to call themselves a methodologist. And why I am suggesting Mm -hmm. that people consider calling themselves a methodologist is I think that we have a real shortage of methodologists. You know, you are insanely too busy. Every single methodologist that I've talked to is insanely too busy. And then you talk to content PIs and they are desperate for methodologists. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we need more out there. And I think... I, I often wonder, it, I think that there might be like a gender component to it. I, I tend to see that women are less likely to call themselves methodologists, even though they have the skills. Uh, but it's not, it, it, that could just be kind of my bias lens on what's happening. But, you know, I think that a, a more people can call themselves methodologists and step up and help our field. Uh, yes. And uh, let's make, like, make science, the developmental science better make it better. But I say that, but then my question for you, Jess is <laughs> where are methodologists getting jobs? Oh, that's such a good question. So, oh, so, okay. It is, it is becoming increasingly, people are becoming increasingly aware mm-hmm. of the need for this position, yeah. this type of, this type of work. Um, it is, it is in some ways central to, uh, any interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, oh, I was going to say this earlier and I forgot. So let me just squeeze it in here and then I'll get back to jobs. So, which is that, you know, if I'm, if you're, if you're a scientist and you study how, how kids learn math, Mm -hmm. for example, I'm really bad at coming up with examples. And now you want to study, well, are kids who learn math also good at music? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't just do that study by yourself. You would call someone who has expertise in music or music cognition, and you would talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to do, if somebody wants to do a study, if they're like experts in self-efficacy, and now they want to measure kids' reading... They shouldn't just measure reading with some random measure they pick up off the street. They're almost always going to call somebody who has expertise in reading. Mm-hmm. And they're going to work together and collaborate together to develop the research questions that need to be asked and to develop the assessment battery that needs to be given in order to answer the questions. What I'm arguing here in my research methodologists should be research partners is that you also shouldn't just design a study without talking to somebody who knows how to design studies Mm -hmm. don't come up with it by yourself i mean you for maybe little tiny projects you can but like also you don't have to this is what we have people that really are trained in this area and they're trained on how to think about uh how to ask research questions and they're trained to make sure that the the counterfactuals are good and counterfactually so those that's what i meant is that they are a content expert in this particular area as well. And so inviting them into a collaboration makes just as much sense as if you were trying to study reading when you study Mm self-efficacy. That's all. Okay. Okay. Now, because of that, and because of the increasing amount of, uh, of knowledge that exists in the world, there's just no way for everybody to keep up with everything. Mm-hmm. And so because of all of this stuff, I feel like this this job is becoming more and more accepted and expected to be part of big research projects. Mm-hmm. So that being said, when I got this job, it was one of the only places that I had seen where they were treating this as an area of expertise. Now, it wasn't the it's certainly not the only one. There are plenty of people out there that that have jobs in this, in this area. But um, it's one of the things that I was so excited about, about this particular program. So I think where you can get a job in this area is there are, my program is nested within a college of education. Mm -hmm. So I think within a college of education, there are often quantitative positions. Now, most of those quantitative positions are going to go to people who are developing new quantitative methods, Mm -hmm. but not all of them will. So that's one place where where jobs exist in the tenure track sort of system. 
So that's one place. I think there are similar quantitative psych. Also, those those positions do exist. Again, those positions are primarily for people who are developing new quantitative methods. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely people working in that area whose focus is primarily in the meta-scientific methods. So I know that nobody knows how to do interactions. I'm going to make you something that helps you know how to do interactions better, for example. So that's the other place. The third place is uh, research firms. So the, the, some of the big education research firms, for example, will have positions specifically for methodology type jobs where they're working on, uh, they, they need people there to help design their studies and to help you know, run their statistical analyses um, and other research centers. So big, big research centers will have jobs mm-hmm. like this as well. And then what I think is becoming more common when I'm talking to PIs is they're saying, well, now they have a research scientist. Different labs are starting to fold uh, in this job yeah. of research scientist into their uh, grants. So it's, you know, bigger places that may not be necessarily a research center, but it's like a PI who has five or six big grants and they have someone who's there to specifically fill this role. So those are the kinds of places that I think people can look for these methodologist type jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, Also though, nonprofits um, sometimes will have these positions. It's not quite as common, I think, or, or school districts too will sometimes have positions like this. But it's not quite the same. Uh, you, you're more expected to be, you're expected to be in, involved in in other aspects of this process as well. So they would like a you know, content person or a, um, you know who's going to be writing reports um, themselves. But so those are the those are the places where I think people will be getting jobs. And I'm hoping that as more and more attention is turned to the need for this position you know for example you really you cannot get an IES grant without a methodologist on your team Mm -hmm. in whatever method you're using that qualitative methods quantitative methods any of them I think you you really need someone who knows that method to be on the project Um, and so I think as those are becoming more and more clear I'm hoping that more of these positions will keep opening up I know it struck me that you didn't really name any traditional departments. And what do you mean? Like, like science, science? you mean like arts no, and science? Yeah. Arts, or even education, like, you know, like you named the specific, you know, department within a lot of education colleges that is, you know, quant methods or ed methods, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and you named quant psych, which is not as, you know, not in many psych departments, but, you know, you didn't just name psychology department or, you know, teacher learning, you know, teaching and learning, or, you know, like where mm-hmm. in reality, like the benefit that a methodologist of being down the hall from those same content people that they're a content expert in, um, uh, mm-hmm. is, I mean, I, I, I have seen at least the small rule that, you know, our former advisor and in my department, at least, you know, why he, how he has increased and elevated kind of the science of the department. Uh, And, um, you know, and I, you know, heard his stories about when it came time for tenure to convince people that, you know, that he had a scientific area, it was methodology, you know, but there's just this, this resistance to this idea that we need these people. They're part of our team, right? We fully believe in team science and, you know, and sometimes some of the more older traditional departments in that, like the, you know, longstanding traditional departments are like, you just, you have, you have to be known for your one, your one content area thing, your theory Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Um, I don't know. This is becoming a little bit soapboxy, so I'll I'll come off the soapbox, (laughs) but I hope that, you know, you seeing that, th- that, that there's a realization that we need methodologists. And I hope that then translates to tenure track jobs um, that are nested right next to colleagues who are doing the content work. Mm. 
Um, and you don't need to search out, you know, I, these big research centers or mega labs um, where that's the only place that people are, you know, being, you know, are, are seeing the, the, the importance of having a methodologist. So I, I yeah, hope more this expertise is being valued. Yeah, yeah. I hope more people see it and, and recognize the importance. Okay. Yeah. I'm stepped, I stepped off, stepped off. <laughs> I think that was wonderful. <laughs> I, I hope that too. Um, I do think there probably are some positions within departments, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about the larger departments that would have sub uh, mm-hmm, sub areas. Chunks. Yeah. But certainly if you have a smaller psych department, somebody's going to teach your stats classes. And if you're, maybe they would value that there. I don't actually, I don't actually know. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to hear if there are people who are serving in a similar role or no people serving in a similar role. Um, I would think that you would have to, you know, uh, you would have to lean in on your content expertise mm-hmm. and then you flag. That's usually the recommendations that I hear, especially for, you know, psych departments. Then you, you would flag that you're comfortable with the, being able to teach stats, which, you know, everybody would love in a, you know, if you're interviewing in a depart another department, but, um, that, that you have to come first as a content person mm-hmm. often. That is the, the thinking. Yeah. So then we're just, we're going to then hope that as people who have come up in this system, there are, you know, we're, we're, you anyway, are getting to the point now that you are in these positions of power within these organizations. And as more people who have seen team science be wildly successful mm-hmm. are moving into positions of power, maybe those are the sorts of things that they'll continue to make happen. Maybe we can hope. We can hope. So all right, declare. I guess that's the end. Be a methodologist. Just say it. Just declare it, and let yourself be I known. Declare, I'm a methodologist. <laughs> Shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks right. for listening. Till next time. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Within and Between. For information about this and all our episodes, you can visit our website, withinandbetweenpod.com. Connect with us on Twitter at within underscore between, where you can send us questions about developmental science and developmental sciencing. See you next time.